Monster, it's gruesome that someone. 
And that was The Smiths with a track titled This Charming Man, the remix. Anyway, this is David Eastall and this is The C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't and some you should, as always, playing the finest in indie pop and beyond. This week's special guest is going to be Stephen Duffy as we talk about love, life, poetry, Duran Duran, Robbie Williams, the Nick Drake moment and much, much more. So I've got that interview that I'll break up into about four easy-to-digest little segments for your excitement as well as the usual award-worthy playlist. But to get the party rolling, I think we should play your favourite and mine. This is Return to Yesterday. Fury of denial, we'll go out dancing on the 
Band Sands from the Lilac Time, and that was a track titled Return to Yesterday that came out on their 1987 album, which was also titled The Lilac Time. 1987, for me, the best year of music ever, and that's a fact. Anyway, that album, when it came out, was greeted with great enthusiasm from the critics. I was just reading some of the reviews, and it said, Endless charm, mesmerising passion, and tantalising atmosphere. And also said Trouser Press, unflailingly delightful. Indeed, that and much, much more. Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. And this week's special guest is going to be Stephen Duffy because I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago about everything you could imagine. It was a fascinating interview. So I've got that interview that I'm going to break up into about four easy-to-digest little segments for your delight as the show goes on. Um, Yes, I can do admin, which I always like doing admin. Yes, you can contact me on Facebook or Twitter, just go to at C86show. And also all these shows, and I've been doing doing them for nearly two and a half years, have been archived, so you can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, and also Mixcloud. They're just all there for your delight. And that's probably nearly, I don't know, 150, 200 shows. There you go. If there's any bands you ever wanted to hear, then they're just try and find them. That's all I say. Anyway, as you know, or perhaps you don't, uh, The Lilac Time has got a new album coming out in the autumn. I do believe it's it's going to be titled Return to Us. And this is a track from it. And it's titled The Simple Things. Slow, yes, no gestures without 
There you go, Stephen Duffy as the Lilac Time, and this is a track titled The Simple Things that's going to come out on an album in the autumn, and I think the album's going to be titled Return to Us. But anyway, exciting stuff, I hear you say, indeed. Anyway, this is David Esau, this is The C86 Show, and this is going to be the first part of my interview with Stephen, where we had been talking about life and a lot about death, actually, and uh, melancholy and depression. But apart from that, we then sort of got onto other subjects as well, which was uh, also the early years of his musical journey. And this was the first part, and this is Stephen's reply. Stephen, what were, what were those early years all I about? Had, I came from a very musical family. My grandfather played the drums. My uncle played the drums. My grandfather played the drums in, sort of in ba- big bands and stuff during the war. But when, as growing up, he still had his kit in the hall and he'd go out and do little gigs. And my my uncle, his son, used to uh, play him in bands that uh, Carl Wayne was in one. Uh, he went on to be in the move. So he was sort of like part of the Birmingham beat boom of the 60s. And uh, my brother, I have, I have an older brother, four years older. So he, you know, he got into the Beatles and the Incredible String Band. And I went to see the Incredible String Band when I was nine years old at Birmingham Town Hall. And that was kind of an extraordinary first concert to go to because they were a pretty incredible band and they were at their most, uh, you know, they were were kind of at their most far out at that point. And then... um, uh, I was lucky. I saw the um, saw the Ziggy Stardust tour when I was thirteen, and then and I saw, so I I was at, at a lucky age. I was born in nineteen sixty, and we we thought born at that time that we'd missed out on all of the great times, the sixties. Yes. But then suddenly there was all of this other stuff. You know, there was like glam rock and all of that, and then amazing reggae stuff. I came from Birmingham, so there was like a lot of reggae on the streets even, you know, with sound systems and stuff. And then there was punk. Uh, but my brother and I, before punk, had, had started playing folk music in folk clubs and in between one-act plays of amateur dramatics. And so we'd kind of got onto stages and uh, we'd, we'd done a bit of folk. And then punk came along and it was like, okay, we, we can just do anything now. Yes. 
So Cause I because it's, um, it's interesting because my brother is seven years older than me and I'm slightly younger than you, but he introduced me to the world of prog rock, you know, with Yes, Genesis, yeah. Wishbone Ash. So did you, did that kind of enter your orbit or had you sort of completely, avoid, you know, sort of missed that one? Luckily, I'm sorry to say this, but luckily I avoided the prog. <laughs> so he, we, we got to uh, Fairport Convention, because coming from Birmingham, there was a big folk scene. So instead of the sort of the, you know, the endless noodling of the prog, we had the endless noodling of the fiddle and the mandolin and the, and all of that stuff. And yes. I was not. I was not really attracted. I couldn't. You know, I'm not a great fan of instrumental music. The the uh, the long guitar and drum solo. And. Um, so when punk came along and it was so incredibly brief and short, uh, I, I completely got got into that. Not so much the music, just the well, you know, I suppose you know, going out and seeing the slits and the buzzcocks and the clash. It was very, it was just so incredibly loud and out of control. And then I went to art college, and and that's that's where I and John Taylor was there, and we started Duran Duran. Yes, you were you were on that kind of musical journey with Duran Duran, which was kind of, you know, one of those great music, you know, those one of those kind of things that often people do a bit of a double take, really, don't they? Thinking, really? Well, that was a, uh, I just, because I'd seen him in bands and he was there, his friend was there, David Twisted, who was in the prefects and other bands. So I knew that he was taken care of. And I thought, I haven't seen, I haven't seen him in a band recently. So I thought this is, so I, I immediately went up and said, you know, let's start a band. Like, probably, it was my second sentence. I was a bit gauche. <laughs> I just went for it. You had to go for it in those days, didn't you, really? And and, uh, and he, I went, then a few days later, I went around to his house, and we kind of strummed around a bit. And then he said, I got, I got this friend called Nick, and Nick turned up with his... And then we started rehearsing. And we, we wrote t- kind of 10 or 11 songs... And then, all, 40 years ago, I can't remember when it was, April, but so we're almost exactly 40 years away from the, the anniversary of the first Duran gig. Actually, I've, got a, I've got a poster right here, actually, on my phone. I'll just have a look so I can tell you the exact date. Um, Sure, sure. You, you're obviously very good at editing. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yes, but it's quite dramatic, actually. I think you know. It is. Keep it, it in. Is, yeah, just edit in a drum roll. Yes. Before... Here we go. Here we go. It's um, it, this is quite a brilliant poster that I found recently and photo and uh, took a picture of. It says in written in hand in John Taylor's own hand. It says six six thirty tonight. Duran Duran, Thursday the 5th of April in the Lecture Theatre. It doesn't actually tell you where the Lecture Theatre is. That's a bit ridiculous, isn't it? Anyway, it was at the Art College. <laughs> and and we, we played, and uh, Rob Lloyd from the Prefects was there, a couple of the Prefects. And, um, you know, there was probably about 15 people there. We played in the Art College uh, Lecture Theatre. And how much was it to get in, or was it a free gig? 
think it was about 50 pence. I 50 pence, yeah. I can't, I can't actually imagine that we took anybody's money from No, them. that would have been somehow ambitious. All kind of, yes. But anyway, so your, yes. your Duran Duran period was yes. quite was quite short and swift and um, kind of beautiful. It was. I don't think it actually got out of 1979. Right. got bombed by the end of 79. Yes. And did you, and, and did you leave? Actually, I, I, I know very I little. You left. You said that's it. You did a Ziggy Stardust. No, they wanted to, they wanted to, well, they wanted to do what they did. They wanted to sound like, they wanted the Japan route. And they were very uh, ambitious. And I'd never really seen that before. And it was like, I, don't, I didn't know whether... That was cool in the in, you know in the art school punky. But then I I mean I did realise yeah I'm ambitious too but it was just like they Nick said I want to be famous and it was like I'd never actually heard anybody say that before. No. Uh, but I didn't want to I didn't want to, I didn't like Japan. I wasn't really that interested in all of that uh, stuff. But obviously. So I went off and kind of did loads of other things. And then when I couldn't get any of that going, I went and did Kiss Me. So I might as well have stayed in anyway. So I ended up doing uh, electronic music. Yes. And did you, I mean, when, when you sort of ended up sort of doing Tintin, which yes. was your, your creation, did you have a particular idea of how that was going to develop? I just wondered if you had some sort of plan or cunning narrative to think, right, this is it. Um, my only cunning narrative was everybody else I knew had been on top of the pops, and I thought I'd better do it. Yes, well, that's quite impressive because you know, obviously, you know, not many people, because the people I interview, you know, kind of have that we're going to go on top of the pops. Whereas most people I know, you're thinking mm, in your dreams, but not in reality. Whereas actually, you were able to craft that, you know, perfect single, you know, a single. Well, the stupid thing was that I, I left Duran Duran, and then. Uh, two months later, I wrote Kiss Me. So if we had had any semblance of adult uh, relationship or, you know, a now idea of how to communicate, I should have said to them, okay, look, I, I left because I didn't want to be in Japan, but I've written Kiss Me. Maybe... Maybe we, we maybe there is something we could be doing here, but you know, as when you're 18, when you're 17, 18, you just don't have that sort of uh, ability to say maybe there is a way forward here. But I mean, it was, a, it was they did brilliantly, and I think with that, with me, it would have been they they would have been supporting Echo and the Bunny Man. It wouldn't have been really what they were after. No, you know, I would I would have held them back. They needed Simon. They needed. The big guy, and I was never going to be the big guy. Mm. And you'd have had to sit on a yacht, and that would have all gone terribly wrong, probably. So. I can't swim. No, it would have ended in tears. It would have been. Can't, would have been. I can't actually imagine that Nick can swim. It, it, it beggars belief. No. I can't imagine him, you know, doing his wits in a, <laughs> in a public swimming pool in um, Birmingham. I, I, I suppose I could imagine Nick. I just couldn't imagine John, really. Sort of that hair would have got wet. So. Oh, no, I can imagine John had a complete... Uh, he was probably diving down and picking up the weights and doing all sorts of tricks. Yes. I bet. Uh, yeah. 
It's a tricky yeah, but, one. But, but, you know, Nick, the, it, besides I taught uh, Nick all, he, all he, he knew about makeup, I said, just slap it on. We're all going to look like this in a year. Every, all men are going to be wearing an inch of makeup. And he, he followed my advice, but it was only me and him in a year. Um, tricky. But it was okay. It was okay. He's, he's still wearing it. I don't, maybe he just never found the, uh, the wet wipes. Indeed. Never leave the house without wet wipes. That's our advice, especially when you get over the age of 40 or 50. Anyway, that's the first part of my interview with Stephen Duffy. Still lots more of that, I can tell you. Um, this is David Esau. This is the C86 show. And I think we're going to play another track before the second part. This is the Lilac Time and this is American Eyes. <laughs> More blissful sounds from the Lilac Time, and that was a track taken from their album, the follow-up album to the Lilac Time from Paradise Circus. That was the opening track, which was titled American Eyes. Hello, David Eastall, C86 Show. And this is the second part of my interview with Stephen Duffy, where I had been talking about the 80s and all the excitement of the political period of, um, yes, the miners, Red Wedge, Thatcher, Skullgirl, and all that kind of stuff. And the, at the same time that was happening, he was making some happy, clappy pop ditties. And this was Stephen's reply. Stephen, tell us what was happening with you during the 80s. Recently, Juliette Lewis's brother 
has uh, edited together some home movies, and he put something up on Instagram, and it was and it was uh, Juliet dancing, and over the top of this they'd put the hit version of Kiss Me, and for the first time in uh, 35 years, I thought, oh, I get it, I understand. Yes. I can see the, I can see the appeal of this, because the first version was was kind of was a hit in clubs around the world, New York, Tanzania, and and in LA and Toronto and Birmingham, and you know it was it was a dance hit. It got to it got into the top ten Billboard dance in America, and it was it was sort of like it was it was dark, and uh, and then I, the the hit version was was incredibly it was it was so poppy and so camp, and it was. Strangely done by the art of noise, you know. That, so you would imagine that, it, you know, that it would be this dark mechanic thing, but it's just like it is so incredibly pop. But when I was promoting the first one, we'd be driving around doing public appearances, track dates, and you, we drove, you know, we, we would be stopped and they were saying they were looking for flying pickets to see, you know, that we were it was the, the police would be down the park down the sides of roads and the minor strike. So we were kind of in the middle of it. I remember doing track dates in colliery towns where they we tried to hand out free pictures and records, but they they were afraid that you were going to ask them for money, so they were kind of they were trying to give them back. <laughs> and like youth clubs where that, that were kind of kept open by the community just so there was somewhere for people to go. Yes. You know, and so so you, you were there doing this sort of like frothy, poppy stuff in the middle of this sort of uh, national crisis, community crisis, like, a you know, it's kind of a, it's an incredible... And did you and did you feel a little bit because because you know part of the I mean the, you had the Duran Durans and people who looked like they had just jumped on Thatcher's Britain with great enthusiasm and went yes that's great then you had the angsty people which I was part of who were into the Smiths and the Redskins and how did you sort of feel from coming from where you you'd come from with your sort of background and sort of well I, I was I was you know I was part of. Uh, the red wedge, as we call, it, as, as it was known, I was like, um, so I was firmly on the, on that side, um, coming from a big labour family. So, I mean, there would be no, and also seeing the effects after I left the Durands and Art College, I left, I signed on, and when I signed on in whenever it was seventy eight, seventy nine. Uh, you'd kind of dawdle up and sign and you'd get your £12.50 a week or whatever it was. And then then Thatcher got in and suddenly it was... You didn't have to sign on every week. You had to sign on every other week. And there was crowds and queues and it was just like... It was it was absolutely demented how quickly the, the shutdown was. And, and that's why there were riots. Because yes. it, it really was, and you know that's why it's so crazy now that people are so. You know why aren't people? Why are the only people rioting? These absolute morons, you know, shouting about we want to restrict 
free movement. I don't wear underpants. I am so in favor of free movement that I I can't believe that. How can you want to stop something that's free? (laughs) Yes, this is true. We'll look back at this period with great, you know, bafflement probably. If we we live that long. Yes, well, let's hope we do. Man the guns. Come on, David, let's start the barricade. Where are you? (laughs) Where about, where where, where are you? We're Norwich, based in Norwich. So, you know, we're just holding it together. It's quite a nice area, you know, and... um, Norwich, Norwich was Remain, wasn't it? It's very Remain. It's, you know, when you have a look at, you know, East Anglia, there's this little red speck of Norwich. Norwich South it is, and it's still Labour, where the entire Norfolk Suffolk is kind of blue, apart from a little bit on the north coast, which is kind of Lib Dems. But there you go. The remarkable thing was that uh, out of all of Cornwall, um, Truro and Falmouth, voted remain it was such a, a blessed relief because after that you, you did think well i don't know whether i want to leave the house i don't know whether i want to travel up north if this is how you feel yes i know i felt, I felt so alienated I know. by the whole thing it's triggering so look so with your your 80s period you obviously went yes. through tintin and then came to the lilac times and how did or why did that develop? And, and you sort of did your, I wouldn't say it was the, the your tin machine period, because obviously, but you, you sort of dropped the name and became a band. Yes. The, I went on holiday with uh, Nick Glad Clues from the Dream Academy. And we went to Jamaica and we, we kind of got a little spacey. And one evening, I was lying on the lawn, unable to move, and Nick came down the lawn with a boom box, and in it he had a cassette of Heaven in a Wild Flower, which was a compilation album uh, of Nick Drake. It was the first Nick Drake compilation, and he had it on cassette. Bizarrely, that is the, I, I got that record from the record library and recorded it, and um, I've never heard anybody else mention that album. <laughs> so there you it go. came out in 1985, didn't it, or 86? Right. No, 85, it was 85. And he, he put it next to my head, and it was the Riverman, and I'd been into the Fairport Convention, Incredible String Band, both which season artists, and I knew of Nick Drake, because he, he was also a Joe Boyd, Nick which he's an artist, and and it was like I was transported back into something. I thought, yeah, well, this this is me. This is what I feel so much happier listening to this than than creating the music I was creating. So um, I went back to London and. I thought, well, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. The, the my second album flopped, and I recorded what the what was what would go on to be the first half, the first side of the Lilac Time album, and I handed it into Virgin, expectantly, and they kind of said, uh, "We were thinking maybe you'd want to make dance music and not sing and get a girl in." <laughs> I was saying, "Well." I've kind of, I've 
on a different trip here. I'm kind of I'm playing the acoustic guitar and thinking about returning to yesterday. And I was swiftly shown the door. Uh, and so we put that out independently. And then the then the next uh, yeah then I, then that was uh, we were off then for a bit. Yes. We, we we were off around the world. We never we sold some in America. We were part of that sort of college thing, you know, when when they realised that there was REM and college rock. And, and there was like bands like the Ten Thousand Maniacs, all this kind of yeah. slightly sophisticated. <laughs> we, we, su- we supported over here. We supported the Ten Thousand Maniacs, and we so we were part of in America. We were part of that. And Paradise Circus was quite the second Lilac Time album was quite. Uh, it wasn't a big record, but it got into the top ten at college. Yes, and so we, we had, you know, we had a we had a fantastic life because I bought a, a little house in Great Malvern in Worcestershire. I was, so I lived up this hill, and I put the band in this old farmhouse at the bottom of the hill. So I sort of lorded it over them. They're in this terrible unheated farmhouse without a phone. And that was the crazy thing, that we'd be rehearsed down in this place and we'd have to walk through fields to a payphone outside the pub and and they'd be saying, you're, look, you're, you're number 10 at college. You've got to, you know, what are you... Because there were no mobile phones. and No. So we were not... I don't think we were playing the game. You definitely didn't. We, if you have to walk across a field to a public phone to find out that you have to go to America because you've, you're in the top ten. Indeed, the days of payphones. We look back on them with strange nostalgia and so mm, sort of romanticness. Anyway, that is the second part of my interview with Stephen Duffy. Still more of that, I can tell you, um, to come. But I think we should break it up with some more music just to keep the party rolling. This is a track from the Lilac Times and this is If the Stars Shine Tonight. <laughs> Chances are they mine. 
Lilac Time with a track titled The Stars Shine Tonight and that also came from the album Paradise Circus. This is David Eastall, The C86 Show and this is going to be the third part of my interview with Stephen where we were still talking about phone boxes and I'd mentioned about Tracy Thorne and uh, when she was in her student years in Hull taking a phone call from Paul Weller which was very exciting. And this was, um, yes, this was Stephen's response to those years of being in phone boxes and that exciting world. I know, we didn't get a lot, get out a lot in the 80s. The first phone call I, have, I, I ever took from another country was um, Christmas 1985 and Booker T. Jones from the MGs called me to say, you know, would you, can I produce some tracks by the and it was like, and we all sat around in wonderment that somebody from America had actually called it. The, you know, the, it was it was not, not so much that it was like Green Onions, Booker T, and the MGs. It was just like somebody from America has <laughs> called Birmingham. This is incredible. It is. Yes, I I do I do have a a moment like that as well. This, and I for that. I pretended it was an office phone. <laughs> I didn't say it was a pay phone, but it was, you know, I thought, God, little do they know that I'm sitting... And I had to keep the door open because otherwise it would sound like a weird echo and they would know, so I, I you know, waged my I don't know. They, I don't think they would have known. They would have probably thought it was some sort of strange Victorian chamber <laughs> that you were in. So as you trundle, because you brought out a lot of albums by the Lilac Times, so obviously it was a creative period, you know, and they were very, you know, close together, because most bands... Well, we're, we're just about to release our 10th album. Which is impressive. But on, no... in, in September, and we're actually, it's coming out on BMG, so we're, for the first time in, I don't know how long, we're, we're back on a major label. But the, uh, but this, and that'll be my 20th record... Wow, because there's a few so, artists I've interviewed, Lawrence from Felt and also Moments, yeah. and they're, they're also people who can just, you know, have got that creative, they've kind of hardwired to creativity, so obviously, you know, you, you don't have any problems or, I, or blocks on that. I don't know that. whether it's hardwired to creati- creativity. I think that, that all three of us, uh, and I've been in touch with both of those gentlemen, we did it, we did it, that's uh, a job. I mean, we, that's how we made money. Yes, because that what... was part of it. You you had to make a record every year or whatever, because otherwise, that was how you, that was how you got the, the checks. You know. Yeah. Well, one of the artists I've always been keen and obsessed and a bit, you know, yes, obsessed with, I suppose, leave it at that, was Lemmy from Motorhead, who just had that. I'm just going to do this. This is my job. Release album, do tour. 
come home for a week, go to the bar, then go back, do the album. And, and you know, that was his job. He didn't really look at it as anything glamorous. It was just like, that's all I can do. And that's all I'm... Well, that's, that's what I'm always... In, when uh, Patti Smith talks about it as duty... You know, this is my. This is what I have to do. This is my duty. I have to go out there and do this. I mean, obviously, she has to go out and do that to you know to put bread on the table. But the um, it, it that that is that is definitely a part of it that you have to you have to carry on. And the people who don't, you kind of you don't sneer at them. You feel sorry for them. You want to help them, but it's like you gave up. Yes. I know. You gave, well, up, you gave up on the on the, the the truth and the job and the getting out, getting on with it. But it's interesting doing this show because one thing I hadn't appreciated and now I do appreciate so is, is the kind of five year narrative. Most people have that five years where they you know they get together they play they get stoned a lot they claim unemployment this is a sweeping statement here and then they you know make a single john peel plays it. they do a john peel session then the album everything's going kind of well then the tricky second album and if anybody ever does america they seem to return and go and then we split up and i didn't play guitar for another 20 years so there, there is kind of what i've gathered from doing these shows and interviews is that five years is that kind of level of almost like doing national service and then decades later you know, sort of think, actually, I might revisit it. So you obviously you've, you and that small group of people that we've well, mentioned. Well, I had five years. My So if I, I, we started in 78, 79, five, 70. So my first five years were getting to the point where the, where the working towards actually getting onto top of the pops and realizing that I didn't want to do it and that I wanted to be Nick Drake. So that was my first five years. The second five years was the first bit of the lilac time when we were on Fontana and then and later creation. And then that was the end of that. And then after that, I had a crazy five years where I made a record with Nigel Kennedy. I made a record with Velvet Crutch, Crush and Mitch Easter in North Carolina uh, that came out around the Britpop time. Then I made another record with Stephen Street, Alex James, Rick from the Velvet Crush... That was called I Love My Friends, and that's being reissued in a couple of months. But you know, in, in, in a month. And then I got the line of time back together. But you, Oh, did you mention the Me, Me, Me? That, the, that was right. That was in between. That, but that wasn't an album. That was just a single. Yes. So what, you, you, know, you obviously have an amazing ability to slip in and out of all these... Uh, scenes and people and and get on with the, each other because obviously you know fantastic I mean roster of artists that you've worked with you know the who's who and then obviously you then have the Robbie Williams moment as well and yeah. before that I wrote with the Bare Naked Ladies which was you know that I wrote with them and they were selling millions of records so there was that as well and you so I got on with I got on with young Canadians absolutely we like young canadians but and then then i got on with with young rob rob so how did that relation you know how did that develop but he was in the same we were i was making i love my friends and he was making his first album and then we're, me 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 were on top of the pops we were at number 19 we thought this was a great achievement and he was at number two or number one with freedom so that, that was the first that was the first i mean but he was that whole period was a village, wasn't it? You know, that Britpop 
thing. Yes. It was very, it was a very small scene. Uh, but I would, and he said, you know, let's write a song. And I, I thought, no, I'm not. We can't do this because you're. You and Guy are Lennon and McCartney. I mean, there's absolutely... I just thought, if I write with Robbie Williams at this point, him, I will actually have me assassinated. <laughs> and I think that I was right. Yes, but but generally... But, but, the, yes. and then, but then I did, and they didn't assassinate me. They let me make an album that sold 8 million records. And you thought... And oh. they, they didn't thank me, but I mean, I, I did keep the, the wheels roll in there for a bit you did and that must have been kind of an interesting kind of experience to sort of to slip in because at that time robbie was had become you know the main man hadn't he you know it was the biggest and so i got to i got to live in a penthouse in beverly hills for three years and you know, and I was at, I was in my mid forties at that point. It was a, I still couldn't swim. I couldn't. I can't drive. So I mean, it was a it was a crazy place for me to be. Yes, living. I'm, I'm sure. And they didn't even have Uber in those days, probably. I so. paddled. There, there were cabs. I mean, this is the, the great. You know, you can actually get a taxi in you LA. Can. I don't know why people don't think that. Yeah. And there are people who were born there. You know, there are. And did you ever see Lemmy in in LA? I've never, I never saw Lemmy. Actually, I did once. He, when he was recording at a studio in, uh, what's that place next to Queen's Park? Like the, oh, I haven't lived in London for so long, I can't remember. What's the, what was the old Irish um, bit of London called? God knows. I don't know. Can't go back that far. So when you just just briefly on that particular album with Robbie, Intensive Care, yes. which which song or songs were you most proud of with those? Uh, I was proud of the last track, King of Bloken Bird, because I got to put a two-minute uh, pedal steel sort of new age flotation tank thing and nobody ever said to me, hey, man, that's amazing. You produced that Robbie Williams album. There's that two-minute solo at the end of the record. So, you know, I'm still waiting. You are, yes. And if did somebody you t- wants to send me a postcard saying, I have actually listened to the album all the way through, and did you know there's a two-minute pedal steel new age <laughs> solo at the end, I'd be very pleased to hear from them. <laughs> I guess you know during that time because the the one thing that often trips people up is kind of the admin and dealing with that kind of world and having spoke to most people and especially Les from the Bay City Rollers it didn't go well for him even though he'd sold billions he ended up with no money and he struggles to play and keep it together how did you navigate those waters I was incredibly lucky in that at the time when I started to write with Rob, nobody, nobody wanted me here. So I didn't, I didn't have a manager, I didn't have a record label, I didn't have a publisher. See, I, did, I was releasing records with a lot of time, but I had nothing. I didn't have any publisher or management. So I had nobody taking anything. And I started writing with Rob, and he, had, he was very genuine and upfront and said, yeah, yeah, 50-50, we'll just split it. And the management were incredibly 
gentlemanly and they didn't try to in, in fact you know, David Enthoven an amazing manager Roxy Music by you know King Crimson and you know the, you, you would with anybody else you would have thought that the management would have moved in but he was very helpful was, you know was, they were just delightful to work with and so I was in this amazing position I didn't have anybody on my side trying to squeeze me for money and nobody on on his side was trying to squeeze me for money so it was just you know I, I could look after myself a happy outcome in the music world that is a rarity anyway that's the third part of my interview with Stephen Duffy I think we'll play another track and then a bit more of the interview this is again going to be taken from the new album out uh, this coming autumn, the album is going to be titled Return to Us, and this is a track that's titled March to, to the Docks. Let's 
the lilac time and the track titled marched march to the docks which is going to be from their new album coming out in the autumn titled return to us this is david Eastall, the c86 show and um i might as well just tell you again if you want to contact me you can via facebook or twitter just go to at c86 show and i will be there and also all the shows have been um, archived for your excitement and you can find those on spotify iTunes, Mixcloud, and also Podbean. Just go to C86 Show and enjoy yourself. Anyway, this is going to be the second, no, the fourth part of my interview with Stephen Duffy, where I'd been talking about the um, enjoyment of having a good relationship with Robbie Williams and um, hoping that he doesn't have to worry about his pension anymore. And this was Stephen's reply. Stephen, what was your reply to that exciting question? We well, see, I'd never worried about it. No. So, so it was it was great because it was only after after that I thought, oh my God, what, what you know, I wasn't worried. But that's you know I think that if you kind of go through life not worrying, then things good things happen. Yes, absolutely, and obviously still making. Nobody music. wants to see a worrier. I'm not going to go into the room with him. He's, he's obviously worrying about something. What are you worrying about? I'm worrying about my pension. I don't want to work with you. No. I want to work with some romantic figure yes well this is true this is always good you don't want to moan either do you that's always but that was interesting with the the guy from the dream academy nick yes because he is one of those characters who also has produced or written some amazing work but then you know has disappeared off our radars in a lot of ways hasn't he well he did the trash monk record which was on creation just before creation went out uh, but yes, I mean, there were, there were three, were there three or four? There were three Dream Academy records and then the Trash Monk records. But he actually did, I think he put a Bernardo Bertolucci uh, soundtrack together. I think he did The Lovers. Nick's, Nick's an incredibly uh, creative and and wonderful yes. person. Which is which is always which is yeah. always quite good. And, uh, I never re- I never saw him as a warrior. One day he said he he said I'm going to India. Uh, so he went off and had his injections, and then he he came back from having his inoculations, and he said, Stephen, I think I'm dying. I've been working on this album. If I die, I want you to finish it for me. And he and he then rambled on for about 24 hours, having the instructions on how to finish each track. He didn't die. He went to India. Everything was fine. Yes. I didn't have to finish the race. Which is probably quite a relief. And are you somebody who 
just has lots of ideas all the time that you're thinking, God, I've got to get that down as well now. I mean, is it something that you have to work on or is it something that you just, you know, it's kind of there and you're always scribbling away or just kind of doodling? It's there and you you know not to pick up the guitar or you know that if you want to, uh, you know, if you want to go on holiday that year, you just kind of keep yourself to yourself and don't pick up the guitar, don't go near a, a keyboard or because otherwise, yeah, I've got, I, I have tons and tons of stuff. Yes. And I, I, have, have, I have tons and tons of unreleased albums and live albums. And, and in fact, with this next, uh, with this I Love My Friends reissue that's coming out in a month, there is actually a standalone album of demos that I, I that I put together, and it was like, how on earth didn't any of these songs ever make it onto records? Because I mean, a lot of the songs are better than things that I did put out. So that's something for for the kids to get into. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to this, kids. This is recorded on DAT in 1989. It sounds like shit, but it's a great song. Yes, absolutely. I mean, because because obviously, you know, the last album you did was No Sad Songs. Yes. Which obviously at that time we were sort of optimistic about the future of the planet. But since then, you probably, I mean, has has the latest political climate and wave of... I'll send you news? a link to the new one. Oh, excellent. It's, oh. Uh, actually, shall I send you, I'll send you some files. So you, would, you, would you better play them on the... Yes, this would be okay, fine. Okay, I'll send, I'll send you the new up. Yes, I, I, and the funny thing is, some of it was written three or four years ago, and even that seems to be, uh, seems to have a... Uh, foreboding, uh, kind of a something's not going quite right here, is it? No, this but is it true. is. Um, it is just you know we were worried about that David Miliband because he was photographed with a banana. banana. The banana it changed history, <laughs> and uh, and then, but you know, now we've got the prospect of go. <laughs> Who was, who, we have film of him falling over and running in terrible shorts. I mean, it's just like the banana has receded from our expectations. But if Banana Boy had become the Labour leader, none of this would have happened. No. The, uh, do do you remember, there was that famous tweet by um, Cameron saying, don't, don't vote for Ed, Labour will yeah. always mess up the country or something like that. But um, I did see but, that clip of of uh, Michael Gove running and someone did say he did look like a sex pervert trying to run that's away. Right. That's right. And, and I he did. does. <laughs> but the, um, but we, you know, we can blame the Tories, but we have to look, I mean, Ed, you're, you fucked us over. If you hadn't got in the way of David with this, but you did that terrible thing with the bacon sandwich, but David was only holding a banana. I think that, David and his banana could have overcome all of this terrible. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't have pleased everybody because it would have been, you know, business as usual for business. But at least we wouldn't have had to go through this absolute nonsense of far right. You know, all of that stuff that we thought we'd overcome, you know. I don't understand racism. I was born in Birmingham. I went to, went to a multicultural comprehensive school. I have absolutely no understanding of why people are now having to go at Romanians. <laughs> you know what I mean? I went the, the 
the aggro at my school in the 70s was Indians and Pakistanis not getting on. Yes. We, everybody else got on okay. This is very true, actually. And obviously, you know, there was such a rich musical kind of uh, environment around there. And, and during the 80s, you, you also had all those great bands like Terry and Jerry and, and We've Got a First Box and We're Going to Use It and Ron Johnson exactly. and the Nightingales as well. So had, 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 had you ever... I, must, sort of, I almost joined the Nightingales at one point. I'm not surprised. Rob said... He took me, he said, come and meet me. So we went to the bar at the university and he said, you uh, you join because you can write tunes and I'll write the words. And it was like, well, actually, you know, Rob, I see myself as a pretty pithy lyricist myself. And it was just like, and he was very dismissive of my lyrics. And he was probably right. But, you know, no, no 18, 19 year old wants to be told that they are uh, not Bob Dylan or Keats. Yes. So I didn't join the Nightingales as a piano player, <laughs> which is a wise choice. I mean, have you all, have you always? Because I, when I grew up, I was very There's still time though. I could still join them. They're still going. I'm still going. Yes, this is true. Um, Rob, come on, man! I've thought better of it. <laughs> I'll, I'll do a U-turn. I'll join the band. Let's go on the tour. Let's go and do Norwich Art Centre. But did you? I mean, that's what everybody else is doing. If if Jacobs Reese Mogg can do a U-turn. Maybe I can reconsider that Nightingale's offer. Yes, or rejoin. You know what I mean? Or sing back Or become vocals. Prime Minister. It's either join the Nightingale's or become Prime Minister. At this point, everything else in between is rubbish. Well, so when, you know, being one of those fans who are obsessed about their, you know, Friday, Friday night BBC4, you know, rock documentaries, and there was the one yeah. on, on um, Duran Duran, obviously, um, eventually, because they, they desperately wanted it. And they and I got the impression they desperately want to be taken seriously as arty people. And even though they mentioned lots of arty things, there was something that still didn't make them David Bowie. Well, that's for you to say. The I was uh, Nick. Uh, Nick uh, emailed me and said, "Okay, with BBC Four are going to give us the uh, give us a, a whole night." Let's decide. I made that record with Nick in the in the early two thousands, the Devils record, which was the uh, which is what would have been the first Duran record if I hadn't left, and we we did it on authentic instruments, and you know we took it quite seriously. We we, we thought there were no records beyond Remain in Light by the Talking Heads, and uh, so he called me years later. I mean, what was it last year? And said. Okay, the, let's. We've got lots of film of the devils. Let's put something together. And then he called back. Then he wrote back and said, "No, let's get the original lineup back together and let's do something in the studio." So I wrote a song because we've got all of this film. And so I got this interview with Taylor where he was saying, "Yeah, Steve would write a song and then we'd all we'd all play along." So I kind of turned this into a song, and I. I sent it to Nick and John and it was like and I thought this is going to be hilarious this is going to, you know this is going to be the best Friday night since I don't know since what could what was ever good on Friday night I can't remember I never watched the television anyway this is going to be the best Friday night anybody's ever had this is going to be a scream it's going to be like Cracker Jack <laughs> and Malvin Bragg all rolled into one 
uh, but then John didn't want to do it. Um. And it was a great song. I'm going to give it to Blondie. Yes. But, um, uh, but so that, that I think people missed out on that. But the one time that uh, I thought, hmm, maybe I shouldn't have left Duran Duran was when I read the Andy Warhol diaries and there was kind of Nick and Andy hanging out. It's like, you know what? That sounds like that could have been a bit of, that could have been fun. But having said that now, as a somebody approaching his 59th birthday, the last thing I want to be doing is going around singing songs that I wrote when I was 19 and 20, 21, you know. Yes. Because I tried to do that. We we played, the Lilac Time played the Port Elliot Festival and we were going to do the first Lilac Time album. And I had to say, I can't do this. I don't want to be my, I don't want to be 27. I don't want to sing these songs. I'm not interested in inhabiting that person that I was then that intensely. Did you ever enjoy playing live? Uh, occasionally, but I mean, I think I might have had a drink. Yes. <laughs> but live, live... I don't know. I don't know if I'd enjoy it if I was completely sober. No, I... That thing, the applause, is that why they do it? Is that why people go out? No, it's the money, isn't it? Not the applause. But even the... I've never really been offered money, but the applause, it doesn't interest me. I... You always think, oh, that was shit, and then they clap, and you just think, oh, <laughs> But you played the Green Man Festival, you know, I don't know, last decade, and I think you did. Hey, man, I'm all about the last decade. <laughs> we played, we did, we did the Green Man Festival, and we played Port Elliot twice. We, I mean, we've done, we've done three, four gigs in the last 15 years. I think, you know, we're hard-working road musicians. <laughs> Yes, you you definitely burn whatever. We burn, man. We burn in all sorts of stuff. Not so much rubber. No, definitely not rubber. But anyway, you're sort of not you know cooking on gas, really, are you? The live, the basically the live. So, so with your new album, do you sort of um, huge tour, massive, massive? No, I've no idea. No, I do a couple of installs. Well, that's enough, isn't it, really? But do you do, do you sort of get a new band together every time you put an album out? No, or do you, no. You just think, this is it, they'll do. No, we, we see, me, my, my brother and my wife, who joined the Lilac Time in 1999, she's the newest member. And this is Claire? Yep. She's a bit like, she's our Ron Wood in many ways. Yeah, not as good as Mick Taylor, though. She is actually better than Mick Taylor oh, and nice. Ron Wood. Oh, well, yes, because if you notice, the classic Stones albums all feature Mick Taylor, don't they? Well, and Brian Jones. The, but the thing about the Rolling Stones is, and this is a thing that I, I will tell anybody in a band, you never never let anybody call Bill leave. Because you've got... <laughs> they would, when Bill left, they became a... A, a tribute band, didn't they? Ron Wood always looks like somebody who wants to be in the Rolling Stones. But it was, it was who is it? Bill Berry from REM. They were rubbish after he, after Bill left. Yeah. And who was the other? There was a, there is another Bill. There's the third. Who's the third Bill who left? Yeah. Never let Bill. I, leave. I'll have to get back to you about the third Bill. But there are three Bills. Oh, yeah. Bill Ward, Black Sabbath. Oh, God, of course, yes. Which is obviously... You know, 
don't if you've got a man called Bill in your band or a lady, never let them leave. No. That sounds like and a what job. a great band that would be if we could get Bill Wyman, Bill Ward, two drummers and Bill Wyman out front doing Just We and Rockstar. That would be that would that's Glastonbury on the Sunday afternoon right that, there. That's classic Friday night telly as well, I have to say. Oh, but yes. Just the two of them. Absolutely. I tell you, that would be better than the Queen's speech on Christmas Day. Right. But, um, Actually, if you could get the Queen in there, that would be brilliant. Yeah. People. They're all the same age, aren't they? They are basically the same, yes. They're all the same. And to be honest, uh, she would be great on tambourine, that's the thing. She can keep a beat, that's the good she, thing if, with Lizzie. If the, if the tambourine looked like a crown, that was very... Anyway, I think we're getting off the point. We are. Actually, sorry about this. <laughs> you know, anyway, so what it's would you... It's Norwich d- Arts Centre still there. It is. Have you ever played there? Yeah, played there at the Lilac Time. Right. Fond memories? Yeah. That is brilliant. And just lastly, what would you say to your 18-year-old self? You know, somebody, you know, the key things that you've Relax. Learned. Relax. Relax. I, you still have a fine head of hair. That is always good. But what happened if they've actually bald? Hmm? Well, I'm talking to, I am talking to my 18-year-old self and I'm saying, don't worry about your hair. Okay. You've still got it. You st- and you still have it? Yeah, I still, it's there. I mean, not even, in, and it's connected to my head and all sorts of things. This is excellent. That is brilliant. So look, I think that... That's what, that's what I'd say. I'd say... Just don't sweat it about that. You don't need to do anything. Uh, when, and you, I, when you kind of like massage that stuff into your head, because massaging your head is good. That's good for the follicles. But you don't have to worry. You're not going to be bald like your Uncle Morris. And that's always important. I mean, yeah. and just as you sometimes just look over your shoulder and look back, what what yeah. sort of moment do you think, God, that always makes you smile? You know, that you think, God, oh, that is such a... kind of brings you great... Great joy, or just makes you giggle remembering that, you know, either album, you know, song, moment in the studio. There is, there is, uh, well, that's the amazing thing. Apart from the 17 years where I was suicidally depressed, everything makes me giggle. In fact, even all of those terrible records I made when I was depressed that I can't bear to play. Now, there's been... Uh, there have been so many amazing moments, but the the, the most the, the funniest one was when I was uh, Tintin. Kiss me had just come out on Sire in America, and Seymour said, "You've got to come over. We're going to do the dance interior. Madonna's going to do it with you. We're going to do because we she was releasing Holiday or something. Maybe it was even before Holiday." So I said, okay, this is, this is great. This is going to be fantastic. And I went out and I, I went to the cinema and I saw E.T. and I got German measles. So I, I'd never been on a plane before. I'd never been to New York. I'd never met Madonna. Didn't even know who she was. And I got German measles and I couldn't do it. Oh. That, that makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But and, I'll... you know, guys, you know, if you want a career, steer clear of the Spielberg films because they're going to they're going to get you they're going to bring you down aren't they, they they're going to stop you they're going to break all of you 
Yes. But obviously, you know, from from your sort of you know, illustrious career, you mm. have met you have met the great and the big and the famous and the probably bizarre as well. I've met Jeff Lynne, which is all of those things. Yes. What about Ozzy Osbourne? I did meet on Ozzy. We did back in the day. Everybody had a round table show where they played the new releases. So you could do there was one on Radio One. That was, all of the local radio stations had a roundtable program, so you could actually, on a Friday night, you could fly off and do one of these virtually anywhere in the country. And one day I was up in uh, Glasgow, and I think it was me, a member of the Raincoats and Aussie. And I was very impressed because he had AVFC tattooed onto his knuckles. So I said, I'm a Villa fan myself. And so we got on like a house of fire. Fantastic. You bonded over, was it Brian Little? Oh, yeah. We, we, me and Ozzy were always bonding over Brian Little, and, and, but he, he was not happy about it. He wanted to get out from under us. And that is the last part of my interview with Stephen Duffy from The Lilac Time. A big thank you for giving me an hour to have that interview. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you haven't, then... Never mind, you should have turned off ages ago. But anyway, this has been David Esau, The C86 Show. Thank you for listening. And this, I'll leave you with another track by the band. This, I do believe, is going to be titled, he says, having a look down at his notes, this is Black Velvet. Have a great week. Hide your Hide from the postman for the night spent falling down in the night in butcher town the night spent crawling like a
bring me the ocean to its knees. The ocean fell to its knees, and we walked softly like snow, so silent. What if you're my one and 